Bishop Chester Wright, and this is the video teaching series, The Biblical Principles Governing the Eyes. This is lesson 13 in this series, and uh, we've just finished two lessons that are very, very heavy. Of course, they've all been pretty heavy, considering the, the as we consider the impact of a wandering eye an eye that's undisciplined and eyes that see and dwell on what they should not be seeing and dwelling on. This lesson is uh, going to be pretty, I don't mean to be funny, eye-opening. Yes, the Spirit of the Lord and the Word of God so far in these lessons has made it very clear how serious this matter is of having eyes that are not governed. And the last two lessons have talked about the possible end result of a person who then begins to habitually give in to the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and how it takes them away from living the life that God would have them live. And it actually ends up in their destruction and their damnation, not their salvation. This... uh, This lesson is different. This lesson uh, will be discussing Jesus himself strengthening the importance of having a covenant with our eyes. Uh, He does that uh, by expanding the definition of adultery to include even looking at a woman other than our wives for the purpose of lusting after them or a man other than our husband. and it's been said several times, this, the potential for danger here is that one may not ever fall into the actual physical adultery, but failing to maintain a covenant with the eyes can result in committing adultery with the heart. So these verses we're about to consider is where the Lord actually takes adultery out of the realm of a physical act only and brings it into a, an act of the heart. And so in, in expressing what the problem is of having a roving eye, he then clearly and shockingly stated how far he considers that we should go in removing this potential for offense against him and against our souls. And I'm saying this is some of the most shocking statements Jesus ever made. And he said it, he made these statements in several of the Gospels, and we're only going to consider in this lesson just one location, and that is Matthew chapter 5, verses 28 through 30. And But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. So notice again, he's not talking about just seeing a woman your eyes just processing the image of a woman. He's not even really talking about having a lingering look, even though that's the transition from looking, from seeing to uh, uh, longing. So it's looking, it's longing, it's looking, it's lingering, it's longing, as we talked about in the last two lessons. It is longing. It's not just looking. 
And technically, it's not lingering. It is the longing look. That's the lustful look that Jesus said is committing adultery with her already in the heart. But the next verse says, But if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that the whole body should be cast into hell. Whew. You have to take a deep breath over that one, don't you? We're going to read these verses because they're so important from several translations as we've done in other lessons. First of all, we're reading from the Amplified, verse 28. But I say unto you that everyone who so much as looks at a woman with evil desire for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye serves as a trap to ensnare you or is on an occasion for you to stumble and sin, pluck it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body be cast into hell. And the Greek word there is Gehana, not Hades. And the, 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 the word Hades is the temporary holding place of the unrighteous dead. But Gehana is the permanent place for those who are going to be lost forever. So he's saying it's better that for you to lose one of your members than your whole body be cast into that permanent place of destruction. Weiss Expanded Translation says it this way, But as for myself, I am saying to you, this is Jesus talking, everyone who is looking at a woman in order to indulge his sexual passion for her already committed adultery with her in his heart. I can't commit adultery as a physical act if I would just first acknowledge that I have done it in my heart. If there was any way I could come to myself and realize that I've crossed the line in my heart, then the Lord can deal with that. And the impact of that is only with me. And so I can just let the Lord help me out of that. But it is this allowing myself to continue to do that, either with that person or with other people, where that it becomes habitual and I'm not truly repenting of it, that I end up losing this place. And therefore, the Lord is saying that the fear of the Lord should be. In one place he said, fear not him that can destroy the body, but fear him that can destroy both body and soul in hell. I say unto you, fear him. And in that place he talked about plucking out the eye, cutting off the hand, cutting off the foot as is the extreme of removing those areas of temptation from your life so that you can be saved. So again, I'm reading again from uh, Weiss Expanded Translation, Matthew 20, uh, 5, 28. But as for myself, I'm saying to you, everyone who is looking at a woman in order to indulge his sexual passion for her already committed adultery with her in his heart. So then if your eye, the right one, causes you to stumble, root it out and throw it from you. For it is to your profit that one of your members perish and not that your whole body be thrown into hell. Whew. It just takes your breath away to, to read that. But 
Jesus spoke this. Jesus spoke this. How serious is he saying, how serious is he making this whole thing of our eye and its potential damage to us? And how serious is he making the consequences of not having disciplined eyes? How serious is he doing that? Looking now at the Good News Translation, chapter 5, verse 28. But now I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman and wants to possess her is guilty of committing adultery with her in his heart. So if your right eye causes you to sin, take it out and throw it away. It is much better for you to lose a part of your body than to have your whole body thrown into hell. <laughs> the Bible is basic English, but I say to you that everyone whose eyes are turned on a woman with desire has had connection with her in his heart. And if your right eye is a cause of trouble to you, take it out and put it away from you because it is better to undergo the loss of one part than it is for for all of your body to go into hell. We we talked about earlier, Jesus talked about if your if your eye be single, and that word means healthy and functioning properly, meaning it is uh, ability is able to focus, then your body's full of light. But if your eye's not healthy and it's not able to focus, then you don't get light in you, and the resulting lack of light is darkness. He he said that. It's <laughs> so He's talking about an unhealthy eye here. He's talking about an eye that's not disciplined and therefore not healthy because it's filling your body with uh, darkness. Darkness. It's filling me with darkness. Now, whatever this means in actual practice, it's telling you how far Jesus expects us to go in order to be able to to be free. The easy-to-read version says, but I tell you that if a man looks at a woman and wants to sin sexually with her, he's already committed that sin with her in his mind. If your right eye makes you sin, take it out. Throw it away. It is better to lose one part of your body than have your whole body thrown into hell. (laughs) I cannot read that without it just taking my breath away. Wayman's translation says, but I tell you that whoever looks at a woman and cherishes lustful thoughts uh, has already in his heart becomes guilty with regard to her. Notice the way he put it here, cherishes lustful thoughts. In other words, I come to myself and I realize I'm thinking inappropriate thoughts, unscriptural thoughts toward this woman uh, as a man, talking about me. And I say, God, forgive me. God, deliver me from this. Forgive me. That's one thing. But he's talking about someone who recognizes they're doing that and cherishes it, meaning they they hold to it. it they won't let it go. They, they like the pleasure of it, and they, they want the anticipated pleasure of the flesh. That gives you another look at what is being talked about here. And finally the blunt language of the Message Bible. But don't think you've preserved your virtue simply by staying out of bed. Your heart can be corrupted by lust even quicker than your body. Those leering looks you think nobody notices, they also corrupt. 
Let's not pretend this is easier than it really is. If you want to live a morally pure life, here's what you have to do. You have to blind your eye, right eye the moment you catch it in a lustful leer. You have to choose to live one-eyed or else be dumped on a moral trash pile. <laughs> he didn't disappoint us, did he, in his paraphrase of this in very blunt language. <sighs> Jesus correlated looking upon a woman with lustful desire to having an offending eye. I've already said that, but I'm saying it again. Your eye itself becomes your enemy. Your own eye becomes your enemy. Your own eye. Now, I, I've wondered why he said the right eye. Because the great majority of us are right-handed. And in most right-handed people, their right eye is what's called the dominant eye. If you're aiming a, a gun or you're taking a picture uh, and you close an eye, it, most people use their right eye. So he's talking about your dominant eye, the eye that you most frequently would look out of. Whether we choose to believe that Jesus expected anyone to literally and physically pluck out their offending eye or not, the actual solution may be no less extreme in some people's minds. Clearly, Jesus was literal in expressing the severity and seriousness of the measures we may have to take in order to deny our eyes the opportunity to offend. No matter how much we are repulsed by the extremity of Jesus' solution, the wandering eye problem, the following point must not be missed. In the discussion of what he actually meant by pluck out Jesus, not some church organization, including the UPCI, which I fellowship with, has made an offending eye a heaven or a hell issue. Oh, well, you know, it's it's that church. It's that organization. They're the ones that saying this is wrong. They're the ones that, that have gone to an extreme. No. No, it's not a church and an organization. In fact, I don't know any preacher who has literally preached this as literal as it could be taken. I don't know any organization who has promoted to its members and ministry anything as literal as what Jesus said. And he didn't really leave a lot of room for us saying it's not literal. Uh, I have not preached that it's literal and don't intend to preach it's literal. But here is the point we have to accept. Jesus himself made it a heaven or hell issue in what I'm watching with that eye. Because he said it would be better. Better for me. And eventually, because of the consequences of a wandering eye, as I've taught the last two lessons, it might be better for my family. It might be better for my offspring. It might be better for those I have influence in. To lose an eye and still be saved than to lose my whole body in hell for eternity, forever and ever. He made it. Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the, the creative God, the creator God, the eternal Father, robed in flesh, speaking to us from that body of his, 
he made it a heaven or hell issue. And no person with any spiritual or intellectual integrity can change that fact. That it it could really be a heaven or hell issue in how you use your... It is a heaven or hell issue in how you use your eyes. Now, whether watching this or doing this or looking at that or whatever is heaven or hell issue, that can only be determined by how much it impacts you personally and how it impacts your walk with God personally. Because the rapture of the church is not a rescue mission. The rapture of the church is a groom coming for his bride. And no bride, no groom is going to come for a bride that's committing adultery on her, on the day that her com- groom comes for her. And spiritual adultery is when we are getting our pleasure from things that are against the word of God rather than our pleasure that comes from being in his presence. The path of life again is in his presence, his fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So is Jesus as the groom coming for a bride, the church, that's committing adultery on him? No, no. In fact, what is going to happen is the rapture is going to be one of the greatest separating act, instantaneous separating act there's ever been. Because those that are, that are qualified according to the word of God, whose relationship with God is a relationship he knows that he had, as I taught in another lesson, that he has, knows them in an approved relationship. They're going to be taken. The others are going to be separated out immediately, even though they may be sitting on the same worship service pew. They may be in the same small group or home group. They may be in the same prayer meeting. But one has a relationship with God and the other is playing the adulterer in their heart and or in their acts. This is very serious. He is not going to take an adulterous bride or an adulterous member of that bride to the place he's prepared for the church. He's not going to do it. He's not going to do it. At the expense of getting off an attention just for a moment here, and this is not the lesson, but I believe that I can biblically prove from numerous scriptures that at the rapture, every single individual, regardless of their spiritual condition, who's ever been baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost is going to be taken off the earth, but taken off the earth to a judgment of the church. They're not going to be left here to have a second chance during what we inaccurately call the Great Tribulation. They're going to be left here for that. They're not going to be given a second chance. At the rapture, they're going, but they're not going as a part of the saved bride They're going to go as a part of the backslidden bride who's going to be judged and cast into hell from that judgment. They will never stand at the great white throne judgment. Matthew 25 gives us verses on that. The man who was at the wedding feast but was not in the proper garment, 
who was cast from the wedding feast into outer darkness with his hands bound hand and foot. There's numerous places that lead us to understand that. So hear me. You ever been baptized in Jesus' name filled with the Holy Ghost? You can't ever be go back to being who you were before. Before you were a sinner. Now you're a backslidden child of God, one who is an adulterous member of the body of Christ. Oh, yeah, you're still a member of the body of Christ, but an unsaved one, an unsaved one. And it would be better, it would be better for you to have never known than to know and be backslidden. So how far does Jesus expect us to go in walking in a life of committed deliverance? How far does he expect us to go? Well, let's, let's, uh, let's look at these instructions. Let's look at the Greek here. The Greek word in Matthew 5.29 that is translated pluck, to pluck out, it means to remove. Uh, according to Strong, Stayer says it means to lift up or to take away out of a place. Uh, the Complete Word Study Dictionary says it means to take up out of a place, to lift up from remove. So what if, what if I can obey Jesus's words, not by physically removing my eyeball, sticking my finger in and plucking, pulling it out, and then taking a pair of scissors and cutting off the optic nerve and casting it aside. What if, uh, what if that's not what he's telling me to do, but he's telling me the extreme that I should go to in removing those things that I cannot participate in without, com- without continually falling into adultery. You mean to say I can never watch another video the rest of my life? I didn't say that. You're the one that knows whether or not you can watch videos without falling into lusting over the people you're looking at. Or maybe it's I don't go around certain people. Not, not because I'm better than them, because I acknowledge my myself. And maybe that person is not innocent. Maybe they've got a spirit of lust. And so I can't go around them and look at them the way they dress and feel that spirit without something in me answering to that. So I cut off that relationship. I don't go around them. Not judging them, judging me. Not rejecting them, rejecting my ability to be around them and not fall into sin. You say, that's pretty extreme. No, Not as extreme as plucking your eye out. Well, I need the internet for my work. Yeah, you may need the internet for your work, but you also are very well aware when you click that mouse button and go someplace other than work. And if you can't use the internet without falling into this trap, is it more extreme to say that I don't use the internet at all except when I absolutely am required to for work? Is it more extreme to say that than pluck out your eye? I don't think so. In uh, Matthew eighteen nineteen, eight, Matthew eighteen nine is another place where Jesus said this, and if thine, thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. Uh, and cast it from thee, it is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell. This is a little different Greek word. 
And according to Strong's, it means actively to tear out. In the middle voice, to select or figuratively to release. Uh, the complete word, word study dictionary says this word means to take or pluck out. Vine says this about the word, uh, that in Matthew 5.29 and Matthew 18 and 9, uh, it's indicating that with determination and promptitude, we are to strike at the root of unholy inclinations, ridding ourselves of whatever would stimulate them. I, 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 I like the terminology here. It's promptitude, that with determination and promptitude, meaning not tarrying and not procrastinating and not waiting, but as soon as we realize that we are con- continually falling into sin by a certain activity or a certain thing we do, that we promptly, promptly strike at the root of our unholy inclinations by ridding ourselves of whatever would stimulate them. That's the, that's Vine's expository Greek dictionary of what the word means. That's not my words. One more time. He said that, uh, Vine says it's translated pluck out in these two occasions. It's indicating that with determination and promptitude, we are to strike at the root of unholy inclinations, ridding ourselves of whatever would stimulate them. I think that's pretty clear, don't you? Thayer says it means the word means to pluck out, uh, to take out, to pluck out, to draw out. But listen to what this word means in the middle voice. To rescue, to deliver properly, to cause to be rescued. So in the active voice, it's what I do. In the middle voice, it's what's done to me. So what if the word meaning here actually has two dimensions to it? In actively ridding myself of that source of temptation, I am in effect rescuing myself or delivering myself through the grace of God from eternal damnation. That's what Jesus talked about. But there's a even a different one here. In Mark chapter 9, verse 47, Jesus, the King James, sounds the same. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. But this Greek word is the Greek word ekbalo. It's not the same word as in either one of the other two verses in Matthew. And it means to eject. This word actually is most frequently used in casting out devils. It is an ejecting by spiritual authority. Complete Word Study Dictionary says it means to cast or throw, generally with the idea of force and impulse. The idea of force being dropped to take out, extract, to remove. So this, this plucking out here, this removing of myself, those things that I uh, I need to be free from so that I don't fall into temptation. I cannot do it myself. This word indicates that it has to be done by the spiritual authority of the Almighty God. I have to let the grace of God empower me with God's power and authority to remove this from my life. I can't just do this by human will. 
I cannot just do this by human resolve. I have to let the Holy Ghost help me do that. That's why I've quoted the verse so many times, Galatians 5, 16. If I walk in the Spirit, I will not fulfill the lust lust of the flesh. If I walk in the Spirit. If I walk in the Spirit. So, uh, Thayer's lexicon says of this word, to cast out, to drive out, to send out, with the included notion of more or less violence. So, here's some other ways that word is used. The word is translated to drive out, to cast out, to expel a person from society, Galatians 4.30, to compel one to depart, to command or cause one to depart in haste, to draw out with force, to tear out, to to cause a thing to, to move straight on or to its intended goal, to reject with contempt, to cast off or away. All of these are different ways that this Greek word, ekbalo, has been translated in the King James New Testament, according to Thayer's. But I I included all those there so you can get the, the full feeling and effect of the Holy Ghost choice of that word in, in Mark. So there's three different words, three different words that the Holy Ghost used in the same, uh, Basic instruction from Jesus. It wasn't the same uh, exact time that he said it. There's different times that he said this. But the Holy Ghost used three different words to describe what Jesus is saying about pluck it out. And we get that flavor and the understanding of what Jesus is saying here to us. Again, the first one is that it needs to be removed it's a place, it's, it's removing. Removing it from one place to the other. In other words, it's got to be, whatever my problem is, it's got to be ro- relocated out of my life. It's got to be relocated. And then the other one speaks of the ter- termination and the promptness with which we're to strike at the root of unholy limit uh, uh, inclinations and rid ourselves of whatever would stimulate those things in us. And then finally, the word in Mark uh, Ekbalo is actually telling us how it's to be done. It has to be done by supernatural authority and force ejected out of our lives. I will not do that by myself. I cannot do that by human will. I may do it for periods of time, short periods of time, by my human will. But it has to be a Holy Ghost conviction. I have to allow the Holy Ghost to convict me. I have to allow the Holy Ghost to grant me true repentance, which is change. Repentance is a change of mind or direction. And I have to let the Holy Ghost authority deliver me from that and give me the resolve to remove that from my life. I have to let the Holy Ghost help me to hate what God hates. I need to let the grace of God enable me to love what he loves and to hate what he hates, not people, but anything that would lead me into this place of destruction. I have got to let the Holy Ghost do that. And when I say let, I can't do any of these things myself, but I have to make the choice of my will to participate in this and allow God to do this for me. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you and I will allow the grace of God 
to give us the resolve, the certainty, and the urgency, and the desire, and the authority to be free from those things that have caused us to fall. In Jesus' name, God bless you.